I'd love it. Just if you could, maybe from your perspective, give us a little bit of maybe a working definition or a thought on what you would kind of say or describe that we're dealing with with the issue of race in our culture right now. Like, where do things lie right now? What are we up against? I think that um, I think we're lying. There's, I think there's a lot of misinformation. I think there's a lot of emotion um, that's based on our perception of the facts that aren't really the facts. For example, um, when we think about racism, racism is spiritual. Um, it's structural. Um, it's economic, it's, uh, it's social, um, it's how we deal with one another from a cultural standpoint. But racism is rooted in sin. It's, it's, it's old. You know, so way back to, you know, Cain and Abel, um, all the way to here, we've had issues with people on the face of the earth. And so we, I think we have to understand that. And I think this, the second thing we have to understand is it's global. So though you and I are existing and living in the United States, um, there has been global issues when it comes to racism and how people are dealing with each other, whether we go to the 1940s and what happened in Germany or the Hutu and the Tutsis, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, Rwanda, um, in, in that area affected by colonialism or Australia or whatever. And so um, sometimes because we're so in this pressure cooker of 2018 tensions, we don't understand that this is a sin issue. This is a global problem. It has a very unique expression in the American story. And so um, when we understand that and that you and I were born into that environment, you didn't create it, I didn't create it. We were born into this atmosphere because we live in a cursed world. But as the scriptures communicate to us, you know, all creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God. And so as God's people... Um, begin to reveal themselves as bearers and carriers of light, as the image bearers of the Most High King, bringing beauty to the world, then I think that we can, um, I think it says, in Ezekiel it says, I look for a man among them to stand in the gap, but there was none. And so we as believers have to be, um, we have to be Ezekiel. We have to be restorers of the breach. We have to stand in the gap. And I think one of the reasons why we're not is because we're caught in the fray and the flow of the craziness and the polarization and the partisanship and the politicizing in a way that I don't think honors Christ. And I don't think it um, ultimately serves the world or ourselves very well. Yeah, that's so good. It's mm -hmm. so good. It's it's so good to be reminded that it goes back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, Journey, we, we've kind of engaged in a series yep. just kind of surveying the whole story of God. And when we look at creation, one of the things God gave us was people to enjoy, but we messed that up. Mm -hmm. that, there, there was sin. I mean, that sin broke that human relationship mm -hmm. early, and now we are living mm -hmm. in some of the consequences and yeah. tensions of that. It's a great reminder mm -hmm. that you make to, to go back to the beginning yeah. and, and see it for what it mm -hmm. really is. Yeah. When we think about kind of our part in it, um, I love the way you talk about just a, a few ways for us to view it. Th mm -hmm. Things like we, we have more in common than, mm -hmm. than we probably think. I mean, can you just talk about that a little yeah. bit? When you sh when I heard you share that the first yeah. time, I thought, whoa, that's helpful. That's yeah. really clarifying. Yeah. Walk it out with us. So f when we talk about racism, it, it's rooted in the thought process of racist. So you and I use terminology like multiracial churches or mm -hmm. a interracial relationship. And those are part of our common parlance as as people that are existing in America on planet Earth. But the truth of the matter is, there isn't su there's no such thing as races. There's only a one race, the human race. 
And so you and I, from a um, a a dynamic standpoint or biology, we are 99.9% the same. And so, um, in fact, there have been studies done where a group of people from all over, looking different, black, white, brown, this part of the world, whatever, have taken DNA tests. And people that look as different than you and I do are more alike from a DNA standpoint than somebody that looks exactly like them. It's crazy. And so what, we, what, we, what that tells us is that this whole racial construct, though it is not biologically accurate, it's not based in any fact, it still has power. It's a social construct, but it's not biological in any way, but it doesn't mean it doesn't affect us. And so every day in the United States um, and, and, and all over the world, we are operating in this racial caste system that says these people have access, these other people don't have access. And so um, when we understand that we're more alike than we are different from a root standpoint, and we also have to understand that this whole uh, uniqueness and mosaic that we see in the scriptures where Jesus talks about my, my, my father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Um, Isaiah speaks about that. At the end of the Bible, it talks about how the, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the heavenly city. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so one of the things that I think gets us stuck as believers is that when we go to this conversation about race or the concept of race or racism, whatever, we just focus on, man, it's heavy, man. It's a burden. Um, it means we have to deal with ancient issues. We have to deal with slavery and, um, uh, you know, uh, the Native American conquest and everything. The Trail of Tears, oh, my goodness, is overwhelming. But the, if we get stuck there, if we just make about the pain and the burden and the, the bloodshed and whatever, we're, I think we're missing the point. It's the beauty of God revealed um, uh, before a watching world is what we're really talking about. And so... Um, what I believe that God wants for all of us is we need to contend um, to be a beautiful people. If you get a chance to have a conversation with people mm-hmm. and you look at a guy like me, or, mm-hmm. and what can we do? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we talk about taking peace to the world mm-hmm. and doing something beautiful in the mm-hmm. world. How, how can we mm-hmm. do something beautiful in, in the world, especially around this mm-hmm. reality of, of race? So, like, when we think about that, it's like, okay, if I'm not, like, Dr. King, okay, uh, if I'm not, you know, so there's this big halting, like, what am I going to do? This is so massive. This is so intense. Uh, I I don't know if I'm going to march or I'm going to protest or whatever. But here's what I would say. Here's something beautiful that happened to me. About about a year and a half or two years ago, I was was meeting a friend, and we were going to have lunch. And so... Um, he happens to be Caucasian, not that that isn't super relevant to the story, but I got there early. And so there are times, um, in different places in our community where, uh, because I am African American, there are people that, um, are either not cool with that through their body language, or there's a sense of fear, um, that you can sense. And, and I think, you know, for me being a person that's been on the, um, often the negative side of racism or prejudice, you, you, you develop a certain spider sense, you know, um, with that. So I got there and I was anticipating the hostess having that 0.5 second, oh, you know, oh, there's a black guy. And then, uh, you know, doing her thing. 
I was bracing myself for that. I didn't even fully recognize that I was doing it. And she came up to me and she treated me with so much kindness and so much warmth. And she didn't have that little hesitation. And so I was so moved by it. I actually went back to her and said, you know what? And I, I think her name was April. And I said, April, let me tell you something. And I explained to her my experience um, where some people have that sense of fear. And I said, you treated me so kindly that it really touched my heart today. Mm-hmm. And she started kind of getting a little choked up and I'm starting to get choked up and she's trying to do her job and I'm whatever. But what I'm saying is what she did is she saw me as a human. She saw me um, as just a, a, a person, not the scary black guy, not oh, what is this guy going to do? What is he, you know, why is he here? And there are times where I experienced that. So what I would say is how do we do something beautiful is reach outside of the construct of your day-to-day comfort zone. Have lunch with somebody who's different than you. Go watch a movie or watch a movie that's different than what you normally would do. And so in doing that, um, it blesses, I think, the people that see you, like as a Caucasian person, um, going to a movie like The Hate You Give. Or a couple years ago, I went to Selma, um, and, uh, which is an extraordinary story about Dr. King. And there was all these white people in there. And I, I shook almost all of their hands. And I did that because I was like, thank you for coming. Because in our society, you know, we as black people or non-white people, we'll go watch a movie with, there's not one non-white person in there. I do it all the time. You know, I went to see Churchill or The Darkest Hour about Winston Churchill. I don't know if there was one non-white person in a whole movie, but I watched it and it was an amazing film. Um, and, but my white brothers and sisters don't always, will, they won't always do that. And so to see that, it blessed my heart because the American story, my history as a black American uh, the black history is American history. Um, you know, uh, Native American history is an American history. Um, l- l- uh, Mexican uh, American history is American history, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we have to understand is the church is an embassy from heaven that exists in this place called America. We are in the same family. That means my struggle is your struggle and vice versa. And so this isn't my deal. It isn't just your deal. This is our deal because Jesus has called us to to family. And so that intentionality of, hey, I'm going to I'm going to dignify and I'm going to honor somebody else's humanity. April did that for me. And and I'm still talking about it two years later. So I went into the bank. I won't say which bank, um, but I, you know, bank there. And so. I went there and it was on a different side of town. They did not know me. It was cold. It was actually last winter. Um, and so I go in and I had, um, you know, my winter stuff on, you know, I got, you know, boots and, uh, you know, and so I had, um, uh, a hat over my head to cover my ears. And when I walked in, I was, I thought to myself, ah, I should have taken my hat off because I knew that a black dude on this side of town with his head covered, he looks like a thug, okay? And so I could feel the people that were working there bristle up when I walked in. And I was like, oh, man. So now, you know, okay. So now I'm in a situation. So I go up to the front, 
And then I say, uh, excuse me, ma'am, I just want to make this deposit um, and I want to make this withdrawal. And I had a um, I had something that my kids needed. So I was making the deposit, taking a portion out, just like people do every day in the world. Right. And so um, it was urgent um, for my daughter. And so um, the lady says, oh, and she says, wow, this is you know, this is a pretty good size check. And I go, oh, yeah. She says, um, do you work? for this company? And I said, no, I don't. I work with them. Um, and this was not the first time that I brought a check from this company of that size to the bank. I almost said the bank's name in general. Okay. You can look at my um, list. You can look at my account and you can see that. So then she says, okay. And I can see her looking at the screen and I know that we've got a situation. I'm trying to be cool because I know I need her to act right, deposit my checks. So I can go do this for my daughter. And so she says, okay, uh, how long you bank with us? Um, uh, man, your, you know, your signature looks different than, so she starts asking my signature. She talks about my driver's license. She talks about where, where do you work and you know, all this other stuff. So I'm going into like this mini interrogation type situation and I'm getting upset, but I know that if I manifest my frustration that I'm the angry black guy then it's my fault. Then she might put a hold on my check. She might think that I'm like a criminal or whatever. And so she deposited my check and I was able to do it. And she was watching me like, I know this guy's fortune is. And so I walked out, I, you know, handle my business. Um, and those are moments, man, where you just go, I was just trying to do my stuff. Uh, here's another situation that happened more recently. I was at a conference and um, uh, I won't say what conference it was, um, but there was a significant celebrity that was speaking on business and creativity. It was, you know, people are waiting outside. I have, you know, uh, access to it and everything. And so they open the doors up and we're all going in trying to find our seats there are workers that are on the, the, the side of the hall. And I, I mean, there's probably 100, 150 people in line walking in. She points at me. She says, hey, do you have a ticket? And I go, and it was like, there's all these people here. But out of everybody that you asked, I'm the one that you asked. And it caught me off guard because I was excited to be at the event. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm the scary black dude again. And so whether it's stuff like that or people crossing the street or getting out of elevators or grabbing their purses, that's part of my life on a fairly regular basis. And there are times, most of the time you're ready for it because you know that's how the world is. But there's sometimes, man, that it just hits you in the stomach and you weren't ready for it. And it just takes your breath away. And, um, and you know, uh, it, it, it's sad, man. It, it hurts. It hurts, you know? Um, and I'm kind of getting emotional thinking about some of the experiences I've had, but it hurts to, uh, to be treated like a criminal when you not committed a crime. It hurts when, um, I mean, I could literally spend so much time talking about situations like this, but, um, it hurts, man, when you're just trying to see your daughter swim and all of a sudden people, are moving away from you and grabbing their purses and whatever, um, that happens, man. 
Julian, one of the most helpful things that you talked to me about to help me begin to navigate this issue and have the conversation even with you was, uh, I can't remember if this started out of a story or it's just an analogy you used, but you talked about the other side of the cup Mm -hmm. and seeing things from the other side Mm -hmm. of the cup. Um, Can you just unpack that Mm -hmm. uh, again for us? So there's a great book, and I forget the author's name, um, but the name of the book is called The Trouble I've Seen. And it's uh, two pastors, one African-American, one Caucasian, are having the discussion, and I think it's in the South, uh, at a McDonald's. And um, they're, they're having this discussion, and the, the Caucasian pastor says, well, um, you, I have something to learn from you, and you have something to learn from me. It's like, I, can see, I can't see what's on your side of the cup, so you have to tell me what's on your side of the cup, and then you can't see what's on my side of the cup, so I have to teach you. And the African-American pastor said, no, 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 no. He goes, you're wrong. And he's like, well, what do you mean? He says, I know what's on your side of the cup because I've been studying what's on your side of the cup my whole life. And so one of the misnomers is that this is a 50-50 conversation. And when I, when I say that, it's not to say that there isn't, like, even as we're talking right now, we're, we're, we're going back and forth as, as humans. Yeah. But when it comes to this whole racial conversation, I, because of my experience of being outside the matrix, so to speak, has given me an awareness and a perspective that privilege um, has not afforded me. So though I don't have privilege, I have perspective and I have insight based on my personal experience. When the world is based on you or as a fish, we talked about a fish, a fish is in a a, a tank. Um, He doesn't know that there's water. He's just living. (laughs) Okay, but if you put a cat or you put a dog in that water, they're very aware of the water. And so they can tell you about water in a way that the fish can't, though the fish is more suited for it. So what I would say to my white brothers and sisters is I have to study what it means to think white, be white, to communicate in a way that my white brothers and sisters can can understand because my success as a leader, as an influencer, as a father, as a man, rests on it. If I can't do it, I can't make it. I can be a white person in America and achieve high levels of success and never have to interact with a person of color. I'm not saying it's probably more difficult to do that now than maybe mm-hmm. 10 or 20 years ago, but it's possible. You know, look at the Fortune 500, you know, look at their, um, their leadership teams and what have you. But as a person of color, I cannot get to the higher levels of leadership without interacting with white people. So in order for me to do it, I've got to be able to understand the thought process. I have to understand the rationale. And I get a learning, le- I get a lesson every day. As a kid growing up, watching cartoons, you know, Barbie dolls or whatever, mm. Disney, I was taught every day religiously and regularly what it meant to think like a white person because being white, being normal, being human, being American are all synonyms. And I learned those lessons well because my future rests on it. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's still really profound to me. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, that you've had to force yourself to come around to the other side mm-hmm. of the cup and learn mm-hmm. and 
for people largely like me, I, I haven't had to. I've been able to learn primarily from mm -hmm. one side of the cup. Mm -hmm. um, what's fascinating about that is now it's almost like I have to play catch up. Mm -hmm. You know, you've been, you've been circling mm -hmm. the cup mm -hmm. <laughs> for 45 years. Mm -hmm. I've been primarily on mm -hmm. one side of the cup for 45 mm -hmm. years. And um, so it's interesting to think about it fr from the other side of that. We talked about this a little bit already, but mm -hmm. just in the context now of kind of, kind of a video, mm -hmm. just, um, just share with me your, your overarching thought or two mm -hmm. uh, coming out of the film, The Hate You Give. What we, what we ought to be taking away from that. I think, um, man, there's so many lessons. Here's what I would say. Um, the primary uh, character star um, is trying to navigate this, this multi- cultural reality she's existing where um, I'm living in a very black urban experience with everything that that brings in her community both good and not so good and then I'm in this affluent um, suburban gated private school environment I'm having to navigate that and one thing that one of her, her friends does not recognize that she's like a regular black girl whatever that means she almost feels like she's the exception well, you're not like them. You're one. You're star. You're this. And at one point of the movie, star begins to manifest her pain and her anger and her rage on being categorized and stereotyped. Mm -hmm. And she flips it around. And so what I would say is uh, she kind of got to her boiling point. And so when I think about the, the, the need for us to, as brothers in Christ and as leaders and as influencers, as pastors and ministers, to be healers and be dreamers, to be bridge builders, to be gap fillers, is, is because this isn't just about, okay, we got to do the right thing. I mean, come on, we got to be culturally you know, uh, you know, sensitive and we don't want to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Jesus isn't just calling us to be compliant. Okay, just don't do bad stuff. He's calling us to be committed and have conviction to have the gospel articulated and preached um, and lived, maybe even more so than preached. So to me, that movie um, shows the varying experiences and perspectives that are necessary to be able to solve some of these problems. I think it humanizes some of the violence. Um, I think it humanizes even some of the drug culture and some uh, urban communities and why that is the case. And so for me, it took me back. Uh, it, it, it was very emotional for me in ways I didn't understand. One, because I'm a father with daughters, so that, that was like right in my wheelhouse. But secondly, um, I had a, uh, a friend um, who was killed with violence. And I remember going to funerals like the one that was illustrated in the movie um, where a young person has gone too soon as a result of something that was completely avoidable. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it took me back to those funerals. And so uh, the violence, it took me back to all of those things. And so um, it made me thankful of the, the, the parenting that I, I, I was able to experience as a kid. I was, it made me thankful for my father and the investment that he's made in my life and has helped make me the man that I am today. Um, and it made me sad for um, so many kids, uh, black boys in particular, that are um, characterized as predators mm. um, when they're all as just kids. 
Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Julian, one of the things that um, we talked a little bit about over coffee, we just we barely got there, but are things that are systemic. They're just yeah. they're just there. You know, mm-hmm. they keep rolling. And and you said so many times, even our conversation today, we didn't create this. Uh-huh. We we're born into it, uh-huh. and here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, if if we look at it's something um, something fairly dramatic, like like the prison system. Mm-hmm. H- how is it set up mm-hmm. to perpetuate? Mm-hmm racism and racial tension. Okay, so um, there's a great documentary called The 13th, directed by Ava DuVernay, that that speaks about this very much, very well. There's another one called The New Jim Crow. It's a book written by Michelle Alexander. Um, And so, so much of the prison system was built systemically in the way that you you navigated the slaves. Okay, so we go back to, you know, pre- um, you know, pre-emancipation uh, uh, proclamation, and now how you organize and how you do the whole slave, you know, how we organize the population of slaves. So a lot of people um, misunderstand that when slavery ended, slavery ended. Well, it really didn't end. There's a great book, and I can't remember the author's name. It's called um, Slavery by Another Name that talks mm. about what happened after slavery was abolished and how uh, people were criminalized by, by things like, okay, you know what, um, do you have a job? No, you don't have a job. Okay, um, we're going to uh, criminalize you. We're going to charge you with vagrancy. And so you come up with all these different uh, categorizations, and now you, we've criminalized you. Now we can put you back into a slave system, and you can work for us. And so the uh, railroad system um, uh, largely was put together years ago by uh, renting out or buying prison labor. And so what was terrible about that is that because the companies that were buying these prisoners or their labor for super cheap, um, they had no financial investment. So like in slavery, I had to purchase the person, and so I have to protect my investment. In this situation, I'm just renting a body, and I can work that person to death, and I can just buy some more labor. And so in some ways, the conditions were worse post-slavery in this kind of gray area type situation than it was during slavery. And so you look at this whole aspect of penal codes and vagrancy laws and renting slaves out, I mean, renting, renting prisoners out in this system that's now a part of our criminal justice system. And when you look at the fact that... Uh, African-Americans are, what, 12 to 13 percent of the population. When you look at the fact that I think um, the percentage of uh, our, our you know, Latino brothers and sisters, and, and you look at the, dis, the, the huge percentage of black and brown people that are incarcerated, we say, wait a minute. Black and brown people don't, cr- don't commit crimes at any more than, than white people. Then why do we have these, these situations that are completely skewed? What is, the, what is the situation behind that? So then you look at the fact that, okay, we are putting people in the prison system, and now we've privatized prison. So now we're literally profiting off the fact that people are committing crimes. Well, if I'm in an industry, and let's say I'm selling pancakes, if people stop buying pancakes, then I'm, not my biz- I'm out of business. So if my business is locking people up, I need more prisoners. And so 
now we're in this weird, like, okay, wait a minute. Do I want people to commit crimes? And, and it, it, it's crazy town. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I, I heard it said that the, one of the ways that they figure out how they're going to build the prisons is the reading levels of fourth and fifth grade boys. And so um, in order for us, I think, to change some of these systems, as we have to look at them honestly and say, why do we have this huge percentage of, of black and brown people that are behind bars? What is that doing to the next generation? What is it doing to that family where their father is not present? What does that do in terms of what I believe manhood is and what it means to be able to do that? And so those are all conversations I think we need to have yeah. because crime has no color, though the way that we delineate crimes and its punishment often do. Yeah. And so yeah. as believers, we have to have those hard conversations and say, wait a minute, is what I'm seeing really what I'm seeing? Or is there a story behind a story that I have not taken the time to check it out that maybe I can learn something if I do? Yeah, that's really good. And you know, you talk about our more people of color mm-hmm. committing crimes mm-hmm. than Caucasian yeah. people, and yet the percentages in prisons are mm-hmm. not—they're not matching up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how far back that that goes. Mm-hmm. It's like when we talked about um, the, the movie a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, that police officer, the African-American police mm-hmm. officer, even identifies his own tension. Mm-hmm. So you get all the way back to points of crime mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. race is even influencing our responses to a crime Absolutely. or to a potential crime, mm-hmm. and then it gets carried all the way out into something like the prison system. Mm-hmm. There's a long road mm-hmm. with lots of dynamics in there. That, I'll say yes, this, we got about let me say this one little quick thing. Um, yeah. It's like even how we talk about um, like drugs, okay? so. Um, there have been, if you look at the sentencing in relation to rock cocaine and powder cocaine, have historically been different. Well, rock cocaine is generally in urban communities, black communities, brown communities, where powder cocaine is in white communities. So if, if I give the person who's on powder, using powder, I give you a warning or I give you a misdemeanor, or I give you, you know, probation, whatever, but this person I'm, I'm, I'm trying then on the surface, it looks like we're just dealing with, you know, crimes. But we've racialized how we deal with those crimes. Mm-hmm. It's the way that we even talk about the, uh, the opium epidemic, right? So, oh my goodness, the opium epidemic. And you know what? We need to be able to serve those people that are addicted to opioids. But the opioid epidemic is generally specifically with white people. 20, 30 years ago, when we're talking about crack cocaine, it was a war on drugs. Nobody was talking about how to serve the, mm. the, the people with, you know, oh, my God, let's serve. You know, we've got yeah. this crack cocaine epidemic. we got to save these people. Yeah. No, no, no. We're criminalizing folks. It's a war on drugs. Why? Because, mm. okay, drug dealers, crack cocaine, this, that, and the other. It was this stereotypical thing of drug culture. Nobody was coming to save black people in urban communities. They were coming to have war, make war with those communities. Mm. And so hmm. yeah. now we're trying to save people, but before we are going to war with them. And so addiction is addiction. Addiction has no color. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is, again, how we delineate, how we interact, on the surface it looks like it's not racial, but we, when we address the systems, it often is more racial than we realize. 
That's that's so fascinating. Yeah. Tragic. Yeah. And fascinating. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's it's one thing to think about systems, and yeah. we have to. Uh-huh. And I and I ask the system question. Uh-huh. But if we if we narrowed it down, we got really small. Uh-huh. And when a guy like me comes to you and I say, Julian, um, I see we've got a problem. Mm-hmm. See, we've got attention. We've got to engage it. But, um, Julian, I just love people. Mm-hmm. I don't see color. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. I'm yeah. not naive enough no, to say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But, but, if, but if I were to say that, I mean, how, how would you help me start to potentially see that differently? Mm-hmm. Here's what I would say. I would say, first of all, it's one of those things where people are manifesting um, a, what they believe to be true. But when you dig deeper, it's not even true with them. So this is how I would say I would respond. And I've started responding this way. I would say, if you don't see color, you don't believe that color or race is an issue in the world and everybody can just, we can love each other and be human, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself a question when you go home at night. You don't have to tell anybody to answer this question, but you just have to ask it before you and before God, honestly. If you were given truth serum, how would you say this? You are given truth serum and say the truth, and you were given a drug that if you took the drug, you automatically became a black person, the person that you don't see. Would you take it with the belief that your experience in America would never would not change? So it wouldn't change the way that you went to the bank, wouldn't change you went to the school, wouldn't change when you got pulled over by a police officer, et cetera, et cetera. It wouldn't change. If you truly believe that if you could take a pill and become a black person or a brown person, your experience wouldn't change, you know what? Kudos to you. All right, all good. But I don't believe that anybody really believes that when you push past it. I believe that in their quiet moments, they would say, the experience that I have as a white person is different than these other experiences. And when people adopt kids of color or they're, they have a grandchild that's now you know, biracial, it's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm living my life completely different because it's been humanized now. Now it's not just this theory way over there. Well, you know what? Those people in Chicago would like to shoot up the place. Then we make it human. So when the person says, I don't see color, I would say, um, I would ask that question, depending on how deep the conversation was, but I would say, you know, do you need to get your eyes checked? <laughs> and then secondly, for a black person, my color is part of my identity. And to say you don't see it, is erasing an aspect of me that I hold very dear. Mm. Um, and that's the tension yeah. a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. we, we, we want to change the system and the world in which we live uh-huh. and yet not take away identities. Absolutely. And so that's, it feels uh-huh. like that's the tension. Uh-huh. So, yeah. And even from a biblical standpoint, he says every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So mm-hmm. even in the, the, the glorious heavenly context and construct, there was uniqueness. Yeah. And so sometimes people go, well, if I just don't, if I erase it all, then we're going to be fine. If we can just be human and we can just love one another, that's not the answer. Jesus doesn't even agree with you. And so what we have to do is recognize, okay, my reflex to deny is something that I got to deal with. Yeah. Because everything you're saying, whether it's I don't see color, um, can we all just get along? Uh, What about black on black crime? What about Chicago? What about whatever? Those are all defense mechanisms to yeah. block us from the real truth and the space in our place in the heart that I think the Holy Spirit wants to reach. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, every tribe, every color. Mm-hmm. 
That's right. So what you're saying, Julian, is the Bible was not written by white Americans? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not so much. I'm fascinated by how American we read the Bible. Uh-huh. But, oh, yeah. absolutely. So absolutely. Yeah, it just gets in. It gets into everything. Uh-huh. I think I said this to you before. I want to say it again. I'm grateful from a kingdom mindset of the unique anointing the Lord has given you to have a voice um, in and around this. Uh, I just think it's really helpful, and I'm, I'm grateful God's uh, put you here for a time like this to help thanks, us engage man. it. Yeah. Thank you, yeah, John. Absolutely. Thank and you. thanks, Journey Church. <laughs>